Hello, listeners. Today it's just me, Blake Montgomery, on the podcast. Michael is out, and Mary Jo is at our Tri-State Summit. I'll take this time to give you a few facts about me. Once upon a time, I was a teacher at an American exchange program in Switzerland. I co-taught the English class with a master teacher and led the students on hikes, climbs, and bike trips through the Alps. My favorite book is Catch-22, and it replaced A Christmas Carol in 2012. Right now, I'm reading A Cultural History of Frankenstein. I am afraid of wasps, bugs in general, wasps especially. From time to time, I write sad poems about kale. I also really like Top Chef. During my final year at Stanford, I ran the Sexual Health Peer Resource Center, affectionately known as SHIPREC for the acronym. We provided subsidized condoms, counseling, and sex toys to students. It's that experience and my interaction with Stanford students in a counseling setting that brings me to the topic of our deep dive today. Sexual assault on college campuses. Specifically, technology's role in reporting it. I'm going to survey the landscape of the problems and what's available to fight them. You'll hear from two women who have worked with Sexual Health Innovations, a company that makes an online reporting tool for college students. This is not a topic for the faint of heart, and certainly not one for children. Our show will by no means be graphic, but if you think our discussion of technology's role in reporting sexual assault will resurface traumatic memories or expose your friends and family to topics that you would not like them exposed to just yet, we urge you to sit this one out. If not, we invite you to brave the dark waters with us. This is a topic of the utmost importance. But first, we bring you the news. Big news from the White House this week. There is no doubt that books are expensive and school budgets are tight. The government is hoping to ease the pressure on schools by offering thousands of popular and award-winning titles, $250 million worth of books, in fact, to Title I, military-based schools, and special education programs. How? Ed Surge's Mary Jo Maddock got the exclusive on the White House and Michelle Obama's launch of an online library application. You can read more at edsurge.com. The story is familiar. Adults wage a bitter lawsuit, but children end up losing. It's not a custody battle, though. A California judge ordered test scores, health records, social security numbers, and other personal data of 10 million California students to be handed over to attorneys as part of a protracted lawsuit. The reason? Two parent groups, the Concerned Parents Association and Morgan Hill Concerned Parents Association, alleged in 2012 that the State Department of Education was not providing adequate services for special ed students. To prove this claim, attorneys are asking to see students' school records. The State Department had been pushing back until a district judge ruled that it must provide the requested information. Fewer than 10 attorneys will see the data, which will be delivered electronically. There will also be a, quote, court-ordered special master in electronic discovery overseeing the process. Google has responded to Minnesota Senator Al Franken's open letter with its own seven-page missive declaring that Google neither uses students' personal information to target them with advertisements nor sells student information to third parties. The company does, however, use the information to update and improve Google products, according to the letter. Franken said he was happy with the response, but plans to strengthen Google's privacy protections by working with them in the future. PBS has announced that it will be launching a new 24-7 children's TV channel and digital live stream later this year. 
Anyone will be able to access the shows through pbskids.org and on the PBS Kids video app and via Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Android TV, Xbox One, Chromecast, and mobile devices. Through more traditional means, local PBS stations will show programming round the clock. Translation, children are no longer limited by time and can now watch after school and during primetime. Chicago Public Schools, the nation's third largest school district, has announced a computer science graduation requirement that will go into effect next school year. Starting with the class of 2020, students will have to complete one computer science class as part of their two-credit career education requirement. The requirement is a result of a recent unanimous vote by the Chicago Public School Board of Education and Mayor Rahm Emanuel's three-year-old CS for All partnership with Code.org to craft CS curriculum and professional development for the school system. Sony plans to build a platform for educational assessments and testing scores anchored by the blockchain, the technology behind Bitcoin. Sony's platform uses the blockchain to secure data and allow its encrypted transfer. Excited potential users may have to wait, though. The company said it won't release the technology until at least 2017. Coursera is adding some bells and whistles to its online classes. Last week, the MOOC provider launched 12 project-based classes, including my favorite, How to Make a Comic Book. Coursera also began offering mentors for 10 courses. For $248 a class, students can receive one-to-one feedback, email and forum support, and a live weekly office hours with mentors. Coursera is the latest in a slew of MOOC providers to include more guidance in online classes, making them, it seems to me, a little more like offline classes. And now it's time for our one kitching. If you want to act like a president, Kevin Spacey can teach you how thanks to Masterclass, a San Francisco-based company that offers online classes with celebrity instructors, including Serena Williams, Christina Aguilera, and yes, Frank Underwood himself. Masterclass could also offer a course on fundraising after closing a $15 million Series B round led by New Enterprise Associates. It also disclosed three previous funding rounds worth another $6.4 million. Congratulations to them and all the other companies that raised money this week. So Edge Surge is on tour this week. Much of our team is at our Tri-State Summit right now, meeting with superintendents and tech directors, but there's also more. We've got a few things coming up on the docket in March. We're heading down to Los Angeles to host a series of Ignite Talks on professional development, the good, the bad, and the very ugly. Join us for the meetup on March 15th and consider submitting your own name to give a five-minute Ignite Talk. Are you a higher ed fan? Sign up for EdSurge Next, our weekly higher ed newsletter coming in early March. And if you can't wait until then, follow us on Twitter at HigherEdSurge. That doesn't mean we're done with K-12, though. On March 1st, EdSurge will launch Chapter 1 of our year-long research initiative on the dominant trends in ed tech. Tell us which trends matter to you by taking our 30-second three-question poll, which you can find in our newsletters and on our site. now for the deep dive. Much has been made of technology's potential for sexual exploitation. When Snapchat debuted, adults worried to no end about the potential for sexting and bullying that disappearing photos and remarks would bring. It's true that cell phone videos have been put to use in despicable ways. The Steubenville rapists are a famous example, the two boys who assaulted a girl at a party and taped themselves posing with her unconscious body. They are now, thankfully, convicted felons. 
We're wondering if there can be good things. Can there be a light side opposite the darkness? Our um, sexual health innovation founder and CEO, Jeff Ladd, had experienced sexual assault in college. Um, and when she, uh, and after she was sexually assaulted, she waited some time to report. Um, That's Tracy Vichers, the chief development officer of sexual health innovations. To report. Um, and when she did come forward to her college, she found the experience almost as traumatizing as her sexual assault itself. Um, she was asked for information she didn't have, um, evidence she did not have, um, eyewitness accounts that didn't exist, um, just various information that she just did not have access to. Um, and so she ultimately ended up feeling really disempowered by the experience um, and really just ended up not pursuing anything um, against her assailant because of it. Um, and in the years following her assault, um, she started to hear more and more stories um, of, of students on campus having similar experiences um, of survivors coming forward to their college and finding the reporting experience incredibly traumatic um, and really unhelpful in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, and many students ended up not pursuing um, any further action because they were so traumatized by the initial encounter with the college when they reported. Sexual Health Innovations makes Callisto, a tool that allows survivors of sexual assault at colleges and universities to report their assaults online. Colleges need the tool. That is an understatement. In the summer of 2015, a federal law went into effect mandating that schools provide programs that raise awareness and lower the risk of sexual assault. Translation, Title IX has gained new attention and American higher education has a long way to go. For example, Baylor College in Waco, Texas, a Baptist school of about 16,000 students, reported no instances of sexual assault from 2008 to 2011. For comparison, Vanderbilt reported 38 assaults in that time period. Stanford reported 53. A nurse who evaluates alleged victims of sexual assault for the Advocacy Center for Crime Victims and Children in Waco told ESPN she sees around eight Baylor students a year, and that didn't change from 2008 to 2011. A Baylor football player was recently expelled for raping a freshman who later dropped out because the university would not provide her counseling. It was the fifth accusation against the player and the only one that resulted in a conviction. ESPN's Outside the Lines profiled three of the students earlier this month. All three said Baylor did not investigate their accusations. These are all details about one university, but I bring them up to ask a question. Would anything have been different if students had another reporting option? We've received a lot of great feedback um, from the colleges so far. Um, a Title IX administrator at one of the campuses um, reached out to us to tell us that a report that they had received through Callisto, she doesn't think would have been reported um, to campus authorities had Callisto not been available to that student at the time. Um, so we're very happy to see that the colleges are embracing it and that the students are embracing it as well. So um, what we have seen um, at one of the institutions in particular, um, that since the adoption of Callisto last fall, um, the number of incidents of sexual assault that have been reported to the college is significantly more just in the first semester than it was for the entirety of the previous academic year. I mean, I think the product would be most helpful at places like Baylor where there isn't already a conversation happening around this. This is, I mean, one of the main issues with sort of marketing social impact product is that a lot of the people who, who need it the most um, 
like might not get access to it just because of the way the world sort of works. That's Divya Siddharth, a Stanford student in the class of 2018. She's worked with sexual health innovations on fundraising, netting the organization $30,000 through a class on nonprofits at Stanford taught by Laura Ariaga Andreessen. She's still involved with the organization. Um, and so hopefully as there's more and more of a national conversation around sexual assault in college campuses, places like this will be adopting tools like Callisto and I think. Now back to Tracy Vitchers of Sexual Health Innovations. So Callisto is a trauma-informed sexual assault reporting website. Um, it was designed to give survivors ownership over their reporting experience um, and to help facilitate the identification of repeat perpetrators um, with the goal of ultimately improving the safety and well-being of students on college, on college campuses across the country. Um, we started um, working on the initiative in late um, 2013, and we launched a pilot of Callisto at two college campuses in August 2015. Um, our two pilot colleges are Pomona College in Southern California and University of San Francisco in the Bay Area. The tool's main goal, according to Vitchers, is to encourage survivors to document their assaults before they report. Few victims report sexual assault, and those who do wait an average of 11 months. Details are lost by then, and evidence disappears. Callisto maintains that record and encourages survivors to store evidence. It holds it in, quote, information escrow. That is, it confidentially stores it in a third-party servers. If an assailant is named twice, the tool automatically reports the assaults to flag repeat offenders if the reporting survivors have authorized it to do so. It's now piloting at Pomona College and the University of San Francisco. One question that I really like I haven't asked yet, why did you focus on colleges? Um, we really felt that there's a strong need there. Um, and given that colleges are, you know, for the most part, isolated um, populations, that we would really be able to test Callisto in a really impactful and meaningful way. Um, also because colleges have their own um, protocols and processes um, that students are more likely to want to access um, or access um, in order to report a sexual assault. Um, and it also makes um, uh, certain things like the matching um, escrow um, aspect, which helps, which basically allows students to have the record saved in Callisto. Um, but if another student reports the same perpetrator, both records are automatically submitted to the college campus. Um, to notify them that there is a potentially repeat perpetrator on campus. Um, and so it really helps us to facilitate the repeat perpetrator identification um, in a way that's um, much easier than if you were to do it, say, with the general population, because, you know, how many Joe Smiths are there <laughs> um, mm -hmm. in the general population? Um, and so really helping us to test the idea of the matching escrow. Um, and we really felt like we could have a measurable um, impact on college campus sexual assault, given that the rates are so high um, and given that, you know, students really are turning to technology as a way to access information about everything from, you know, how to report a sexual assault to how to order textbooks to how to register for classes to information um, about where to get tested for STDs. You know, this generation is really um, using technology to learn about on sensitive topics to get access to the information that they need um, and be able to take action based off of the information that they find um, online. Um, 
And so, you know, there are potential future applications for Callisto um, that we're considering exploring. Um, and again, there tend to be in more um, specific communities. So, um, for example, uh, reporting of military sexual assault, we think Callisto could potentially have applications there, um, or even um, workplace sexual harassment. Um, so we think that those are two potential applications for the system. Callisto isn't the only tool out there. Crisis Text Line, for example, allows people to text crisis counselors in real time. Counselors and survivors have exchanged 6.5 million text messages in the two years after its founding. Haven, an online program that aims to educate students about consent before they arrive on campus, is in use in 600 U.S. schools. There are dozens of tools like this out there. And as this conversation grows, hopefully so will their positive effects. There's an oft-cited statistic that one in five college women will become the victim of a sexual assault during her time at the university. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, technology can make that less. And the worst message we ever got said exactly this. That's Nancy Lublin, creator of Crisis Text Line at her 2015 TED Talk. He won't stop raping me. It's my dad. He told me not to tell anyone. Are you there? We couldn't believe this was happening. Like, we, we couldn't believe that something so horrific could happen to a human being, and then that she would share it with us, something so intimate, so personal. And we realized we had to stop triaging this, and we had to build a crisis text line for these people in pain. So we launched Crisis Text Line. Sexual assault has been getting a lot of press lately. There have been protests across the country asking universities to give more help to survivors. Emma Solkowitz critiqued her own alma mater, Columbia University, by carrying a 50-pound mattress like the one Columbia uses in their dorms wherever she went on campus. It was a performance called Carry That Weight. She said the piece would last until her alleged assailant left campus or was removed by the university. He was not found responsible, and Solkowitz graduated in May 2015. When I was a senior at Stanford in 2014, there were protests over Stanford's handling of sexual assault cases. They largely centered around the figure of Leah Francis, whose ex-boyfriend was eventually convicted of assaulting her during a winter holiday. He was sentenced to a five-quarter suspension, about a year and a half. He could return to campus after the suspension, which outraged activists. One of the things that's happening on Stanford campus right now, or especially last year, is that the Title IX coordinator uh, position was in flux a lot, and so there have been a lot of questions around what the protocol even is for sexual assault reporting here, which is why I think it's so important to like create something very standardized that can be used in a lot of colleges. And so it's through some of the problems and issues that I saw here and that I saw in other schools that I became interested in the space. Um, and yeah, I, I am now involved in like trying to bring that to campus here and things like that. These protests usually ask universities to do more to help survivors. And most of these activists are skeptical of technological solutions because it seems like an easy out for the university. Often, incorporating technological solutions can seem like university officials are trying to do less, like they're trying to take a hands-off approach. Going off of that, how do you respond to people who say that there is truly like not enough of the in-person and administrative expertise around sexual assault prevention and reporting, and that like that should come before technical solutions? How do you respond to that? 
I mean, I think it would be amazing if, like, each survivor were paired with a psychiatrist and an administrative professional that, like, walked them through the process and made sure they were okay. But the problem is that we just don't have those resources. And I think I would say to those people, like, yes, that's an incredible ideal to work towards, but in the current climate, what we want is for survivors to be taken care of in the best possible way as we are right now. And for that, we need to focus on solutions that can begin helping them right away. Um, that don't require, like schools like Baylor, they're definitely not going to hire like a team of psychiatrists to work with survivors, but it might be possible to convince them to adopt a simple website and things like that. And so for those climates, I think it's, a, it's very important to see the landscape we're working in and sort of work within that rather than being idealistic to an extent that nothing gets done. Mm -hmm. um, I think technology is really important in sort of solving big problems generally because while solutions on a small scale are really great and can be effective, to really scale solutions you need to have a technical sort of backdrop for them. And so that's why I think Calypso is so great. I earlier mentioned like standardizing procedures, which I think is something that technology is really good for. Basically like while Stanford, for example, probably has the resources to make all of this happen through like people and like hiring counselors and like things like that. But a lot of schools aren't so lucky um, and aren't so inundated with resources. Um, and so it's really important to have a solution that's something like a website that can that can do the work of a lot of people. Or like a lot of schools don't have dedicated Title IX coordinators. Like they serve a lot of functions and it's just it's really important to have a solution that doesn't require a lot of those outside factors, which is I think what technology is really important for. And like I said, scale is best achieved through, through technology because you can easily ship your website to like one school or a hundred schools and the website doesn't have to change that much, which is amazing. But it's also important to know that the creators of Callisto don't see themselves as making something that will replace in-person counseling and administrative solutions. They're advocates for more counseling and more student training. Those things are effective and do a world of good for survivors. They also, however, take time to implement. So whether you believe in tech solutions for reporting sexual assault or not, the people who work to improve these resources just want survivors to feel a bit safer in the process of reporting their assaults. Um, I think the criticism that we receive is what a lot of organizations that work on sexual violence prevention and response receive. That's Tracy Vitches again, one last time. Um, which is a lot of doubt around the statistics and a lot of doubt um, and denial around how prevalent sexual violence actually is on college campuses. Um, and, you know, we and our peer organizations in the prevention and response space see this quite frequently. Um, you know, it's shocking to a lot of people that, you know, 20% of, you know, women will experience sexual assault at some point during their college career. It's shocking to them that one in 13 men will experience sexual assault during their college career or that, you know, 24% of trans or gender nonconforming students will experience sexual assault during their college career. Um, and it's often very jarring for people to hear that data and then think about how, you know, think about five, you know, young women that you know who are currently enrolled in college and realize that one of them is, most, is potentially going to be sexually assaulted during their undergraduate career or think about 13 men you know or, you know, other trans and gender queer people in your life and just think about how difficult um, it must be for them to overcome that sexual assault. Um, and so it's, 
hearing those statistics is often very jarring. And there's a lot of criticism, I think, in the space generally about the research um, around perpetration, around survivorship. Um, but I think that as more and more colleges have been um, completing um, campus climate surveys to really understand who has experienced sexual assault on their campus um, and over what period of time, every study that's coming out, the numbers are within percentage points of each other. Um, and we're seeing that, you know, every time a campus comes out, it's you know, 18% of women, 20% of women, 22% of women, it's all in a very similar range. Um, and so we've really, you know, been able to feel validated in the research um, that informed Callisto based off of those campus climate surveys. Um, one of the other questions or concerns that gets raised a lot is around um, the idea of repeat perpetration, um, because there was a famous study conducted in the early 2000s by Dr. David Liefak, um, that essentially found that 90% of campus sexual assault are, assaults are committed by repeat perpetrators who are a, a very small minority of the student population, um, but they are, you know, committing on average, you know, more than four to five acts of sexual violence throughout their college career. Um, and so that is often shocking um, to people as well to realize that there are these repeat perpetrators on campus um, who are often going undetected because reporting is so low. Um, and, you know, and that's really difficult, I think, for a lot of people to process or understand that, you know, it's, you know, a minority of students on campus who are most likely to commit sexual assault and who are committing sexual assault um, multiple times throughout their, you know, four plus years on a given campus. Um, and then the only other criticism or question that we've faced is really about um, students using um, basically their computer or the internet um, to create a report of sexual assault um, and concerns that students then won't access in-person resources um, because they're just sitting, you know, behind their computer and not like what they really should be doing is going to campus security going to the dean's office, going to the health center to get care. Um, and, you know, we don't view Callisto as um, preventing students from doing that or even replacing in-person support services, um, but rather we're viewing Callisto as giving students the information that they need in a trauma-informed way to decide if and when they want to access those support services, hopefully help accelerate the time between the sexual assault and when they do access those support services. So that way it helps to facilitate survivor healing. It helps to facilitate survivor empowerment by giving them the information they need to make the best decisions for themselves. Um, and you know, ultimately, if a student does create a record um, of their sexual assault in Callisto, ultimately, if they do choose to report, it will go to a real person. It will go to the campus Title IX coordinator who will schedule a follow-up meeting with them to really have a nuanced conversation with the survivor about what happened, um, given the information the survivor has chosen to share through Callisto. Um, and so we're really hoping that it helps to um, help students feel better empowered when they go into that process to understand what they should expect, who they're going to have to talk to, what the process looks like, um, so that way they can make the best decision for themselves. Um, but I do think technology, you know, it enables people to act regardless of, you know, where they're located um, to be able to access information and, you know, vital information that's important to their health. Um, 
without, you know, having to go in person. Um, you know, one of the things that we've really found, particularly around sexual health and well-being, is that issues such as STDs, sexual assault, um, unintended pregnancy, they tend to really affect populations with less political power and financial resources, such as youth, such as racial and gender minorities, women, LGBT people, um, and given that their lack of influence is combined with the stigmatization of sexual health topics, it makes it hard for them to access more traditional, high-quality sexual health education services and support, um, whereas technology is able to provide this access more conveniently and at a fraction of the cost of those traditional solutions. Um, so it ultimately is better a, a better positioned to enable those most in need to take informed action. Um, so we're really hoping to see technology used more in this space um, to be able to create that change and to be able to empower people who are facing um, sexual health and well-being issues or just health challenges um, more generally um, to take better control of their health um, and to make better, more informed decisions for themselves. That's all for today, listeners. As always, I want to thank you for listening to today's podcast. And if you want to respond, tweet at us, at EdSurge, or me, at Blaker5. Thank you to everyone who contributed to EdSurge this week, and I will see you next time. This is the EdSurge podcast.